I'm Dan Diamond, this is Pulse Check, and this is a bonus episode looking at what is coming for Congress in September. I am joined on this Friday afternoon recording by two of my colleagues. First, Politico's Adam Kankren, who is covering The Hill and specifically the Brett Kavanaugh hearings next week. Hey, Dan, good to be here. And on my left, just literally, not politically, Paul Demko, our insurance reporter, who is heading down to Texas to cover the lawsuit against the ACA. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you, Dan. We are recording this before the Kavanaugh hearing on Tuesday, before the oral arguments in the Texas case over the ACA's preexisting conditions. So by the time you hear this, things may have changed. But because Congress is coming back, the summer is over, and there are some very big issues ahead for healthcare, we want to offer a guide to what is coming. And we'll start with the Kavanaugh hearing. Adam, you will be there on Tuesday morning. Can you lay out what is going to happen with the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing? What is the goal? Sure. And this is this is the main event for the Hill over the next you know several days uh, here. Uh, the idea is they're going to bring in Brett Kavanaugh starting at 930 in the morning on Tuesday. It'll go for uh, from Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, the main event, though, really will be Wednesday where all the senators get to ask Kavanaugh questions about you know, his judicial philosophy, how he would kind of approach the Supreme Court. Basically, Republicans are going to try and use that to bolster his record, to really highlight the things that have gotten him to where he is at this point. And Democrats are, are predictably going to try and poke holes in his record, going to try and find areas that might disqualify him from, from the Supreme Court. And the reason we're talking about it on this podcast is because healthcare is expected to play a major role in both what he is going to be asked about by the senators and also what he could then rule on if he is confirmed. Exactly. Both both abortion rights and uh, the Affordable Care Act are going to be probably the two main things you're going to hear about beyond the Mueller investigation, beyond executive power. These are the main policy issues. One is where Brett Kavanaugh stands on Roe v. Wade, uh, where he stands on some smaller cases that have the potential to really erode reproductive rights uh, in this country. And secondly, where he would land on any challenges that might come up to Obamacare, and, and most notably the one that's currently ongoing in, in Texas that is uh, is challenging Obamacare's constitutionality and that the Trump administration has said, uh, has joined in part and said should wipe out protections for pre-existing conditions. So these are the two kind of central themes that that Democrats are really going to be pressing Kavanaugh on. And to revisit, because we have talked about Kavanaugh's previous rulings and his statements on things that are in the healthcare bucket, on abortion rights, it's it's unclear exactly where he would come down if there was a challenge to Roe v. Wade. Yeah, he's he said that essentially Roe v. Wade is what he considers settled precedent. So this idea that he's going to respect precedent, he's going to respect the fact that you know, it's been ruled on before. But as Democrats have said, that's kind of a dodge. Everything is settled precedent until the Supreme Court decides to unsettle it. And they can do that at any point, you know, with any case. So the idea that he he would just say it's settled law and that would be okay is really not going to fly. And, and what Democrats want him to state really decisively at the hearing is whether he believes Roe v. Wade in particular was correctly decided. Uh, his personal opinion. And they've tried to do this uh, in 2006 when he was going through confirmation hearings for a lower court. And he managed to kind of, you know, dodge and not really give his personal opinion. Uh, they've tried it with several other you know, conservative judges that were going through confirmation hearings. But that's going to be the main thing to watch is is how much they can pin him down on on his view. 
And, and what about on Obamacare? I mean, does he have any track record in terms of the cases that we've seen that have already percolated through the courts? Is there any indication whatsoever of where he's come down on those cases, mean, meaning mainly the, the individual mandate case and the uh, state-based exchange cases that went to, all the way to the Supreme Court? Sure. So there's there's nothing definitive where you can point to either, you know, he loves Obamacare or he hates Obamacare. Uh, there was one, there's a 2011 case. It was a challenge to the ACA. And Kavanaugh, in his uh, in his opinion, essentially said, you know, I would I'm going to reject this case because it's it, there hasn't been anybody injured. It's too early to bring this. So in a sense, that was a victory for you know proponents of the ACA. However, he wrote in a footnote to that opinion that essentially suggested presidents could ignore laws that they felt personally were unconstitutional, and that's really alarmed. Uh, it's really alarmed Democrats and, and supporters of the ACA because they say, you know, what you can make kind of a logical leap there between that opinion and, you know, President Donald Trump saying, well, I just don't believe that all of Obamacare is constitutional personally, and therefore we're not going to enforce the law. We just had a podcast episode devoted to a lawsuit, a very different lawsuit, the one challenging Trump for not fulfilling his presidential duties. And the argument that the White House could potentially make is that the White House doesn't believe that the ACA is currently constitutional. In fact, that's part of the case that we'll be hearing about in a moment from Paul. I, I just want to step back. The advocacy groups have been organizing all summer on both sides around this hearing. This has been a major buildup, uh, really one of the, the few that you will see in, in Congress, just given the, the stakes. And I've talked to reproductive health groups like NARAL, like Planned Parenthood, that are mobilizing and fundraising like crazy off this. And then more quietly, the anti-abortion groups like Susan B. Anthony List have held a number of smaller rallies around the country. In the work that both of you do, how do you sense that, that the Kavanaugh hearing is playing leading up to the election in November? How much does it matter for both sides just to get their licks in so they'll be able to steer their messaging leading up to the midterms? Well, cer certainly some Senate Democrats believe that this is kind of huge to hammering on your theme of Republicans are a threat to health care, uh, both the Affordable Care Act and to abortion rights. And unless essentially we take back the House and possibly the Senate, there's going to be no way to stop them from unraveling things legislatively through the courts, et cetera. And so the idea here is even if at the end of the day you can't really kill Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, at least you can paint him as part of this broader scheme from Republicans to roll back Obamacare, to roll back pre-existing you know, condition protections, some of the things that we've heard about for the past several months. It's worth noting that Brett Kavanaugh, he went through an earlier hearing where he skated past some of the most troubling areas. This is a guy who's been preparing for years and years for this moment. We are not expecting him to misspeak. Are we? No, the, I mean he, the the odds are very low. Uh, a lot of these confirmation hearings, the 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 candidates are extremely prepped. Uh, there's one side that's always kind of coming to to his defense. So you know, Republicans aren't exactly going to be, you know, really aggressive in their questioning, most likely. And they might ask him about taking kids to the school dance or being a basketball exactly. coach. I hear exactly. he's very good at both of those things. There's been a lot of vouching for his character uh, in, in GOP circles. Uh, but this is a process where that Brett Kavanaugh has been preparing for since he was nominated. And that includes going through you know, mock hearings, 
uh, to the point where uh, some of my political colleagues uh, reported yesterday that they've had mock hearings where protesters have, have, have stood up and tried to rattle him. And so they're really just trying to prepare for really a- any kind of question, any angle that, that Democrats might come after him. And I think politically, the flip side for Republicans is, I mean, if there's one thing Donald Trump has followed through on, it's really in in, in nominating conservative judges that are going to uh, be very uh, palatable to the base. And, uh, you know, I think the timing of this nomination potentially works out well for the midterm election for them, because if, if you're thinking about this being a, a base election, um, they're going to have this to point to either poised to be approved or probably already approved, um, you know, heading into the midterms and and a really huge change in the court um, that uh, should galvanize, uh, you know, base conservatives. Or if it doesn't get approved, then it's the open seat that will motivate voters potentially to turn out. I I wanted to come back to a point, Adam. Uh, Jen Haberkorn of the Los Angeles Times, something I'm still getting used to saying, had reported that Kavanaugh was privately assuring Senate Democrats that the ACA lawsuit that Paul's going to talk about in a moment didn't hold a lot of legal merit. Are there Democrats that you've talked to who are going to go after Kavanaugh aggressively? And and does this sort of private reassurance actually do anything? Well, and this gets back to the whole idea of, of executive authority and how much uh, power, you know, Brett Kavanaugh believes the president should be able to exercise over laws in Congress. So, uh, yes, he's he said in certain writings and, and, and again, assuring, you know, Democrats privately that you know, he doesn't view the argument in that Texas case as particularly compelling, I guess is the best way to put it. That said, there are still some questions about if the president says, I'm just not going to enforce the Affordable Care Act, and that becomes a legal case that goes to the Supreme Court, there's no real assurance or any kind of feeling of comfortability from Democrats that Brett Kavanaugh wouldn't end up siding with Trump on that view of executive authority. Let's talk now about that Texas case, which on Wednesday will be essentially split screened with the Kavanaugh hearing in D.C. Paul, you're heading down to Texas. What What is this case going to entail on Wednesday? How much is just going to be throat clearing and how much is just this is a novel case where states are, are suing the United States and the administration is on board with that? Yeah, I think there's three parties you need to think about here. We have the 20 conservative-led states who have brought this lawsuit saying basically that because the tax penalty for the individual mandate was struck down, that sort of invalidates the entire sort of infrastructure of Obamacare and the whole law should be ditched immediately. And then you have the kind of strange stance taken by the administration where they've said, well, we partially agree with that argument and we're not going to defend this law in its entirety. And we think that... uh, most notably the consumer protections of the ACA, most notably uh, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, uh, should be struck down. But they say, don't do that immediately. No need for the court to act right now. That's not going to happen until 2019. So when 2019 rolls around, those uh, insurance protections will then be eliminated. And then you've had 16 states, Democratic-led states, that have said, hold on, we need to intervene in this case because our financial interests aren't being protected here by the federal government and the Department of Justice. And they're saying, you know, that the entire law should be upheld and that this uh, argument that the, the 20 conservative states have articulated is meritless. Is there any precedent for this sort of challenge where the White House has joined on 
to challenge a, a sitting law? Well, the one that, that people always point to is the Obama administration and the Defense of Marriage Act, where um, they d- decided they did not would not defend that law. So that's really the, the precedent that most people look to, but it is a very rare uh, situation. And progressives liked that one. This one they're not as keen on. What are the real-world implications for patients, Paul? Are these protections going away anytime soon, even if the Trump administration wins at this, at this court fight? Well, potentially, yes, they are. Theoretically, they are. Um, that very well could happen. I think that what w- the question is, what are the merits of this lawsuit, right? And I think that's where a, a lot of people are very dubious that this is going to succeed. And I'll give you one example that was striking to me in reading the briefs this week. Um, Case Western Reserve University professor Jonathan Adler, who was one of the architects of the last major Obamacare lawsuit, King v. Sebelius, um, you know, filed a brief saying that the arguments don't have any merit in this case. And he was joined with uh, Nicholas Bagley and uh, Abby from uh, University of Michigan and Abby Gluck from uh, Yale, who are two typically uh, proponents of the Affordable Care Act in that argument. So I thought it was very striking that you had one of the harshest legal critics of Obamacare saying that this case doesn't have merit. Though we have seen other cases that were discounted initially find their way all the way to the court, the Supreme Court eventually. That's right. It's 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 a fool's game to try to predict how these things will will turn out. I mean, if you remember back all the way to 2012, everybody everybody thought that the Supreme Court was going to strike down the individual mandate um, and invalidate the law, and uh, you know that did not actually come to pass. One reason we're talking about this now is because of the political import again ahead of the midterm elections of this case hanging out there over the ACA. What are the two of you hearing? from sources across the industry and and on the Hill about how each party is using this case to mobilize for the midterms? Well, well, for Democrats, I'll I'll take that side. Paul and I wrote, I believe, last week uh, just about how much of a gift they believe that this is. I mean, if you think about it, about a month ago, the midterms were shaping up to be a contest of what do you prefer, Obamacare repeal or Medicare for all, single payer. Now, all we're doing is talking about pre-existing conditions, something that 90% of the of the nation believes in and believes should stay. Even Republicans even rep- su- support across, the idea of the ACA's protection. It's a, it's a bipartisan issue to the point where you have Republican candidates, you have Republicans in Congress who are, you know, even if they're not willing to go as far as to disagree with the position the Trump administration's taken, they've said, no matter what happens to the ACA, we're going to protect pre-existing conditions. That's something that we're not going to give on. A- and Democrats are saying, well, look, you know, if that's how you feel, then you're talking out of both sides of your mouth because on the one hand, you're trying to wipe out Obamacare in its entirety. Uh, and on the other hand, you're saying that somehow afterward we'll come up with a plan to protect pre-existing conditions. And, and for Democrats, they, I mean, that's, they view that as a political gift two months before the midterms. It's, uh, you know, it, it couldn't have worked out better in their mind. And I'll, to put a point on that, there was an analysis by Wesleyan Media Project looking at um, advertising in-house races, and uh, it found that over 60% of the ads run by Democrats were on health care that dealt with issues, and compared to 15% uh, for Republicans. So that really highlights how much they see this uh, the, the advantage on this issue. And then I think even more to Adam's point, you're really seeing, I think in particular of Heidi Heitkamp's race in... In North Dakota, where she's been hitting this again and again and again, but also 
um, you know, Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Joe Donnelly in Indiana. These are races where I think they feel that that's a politically potent issue that can that can pull pull in uh, Republicans as well as Democrats. And, and it helps in particular in West Virginia, for example. Patrick Morrissey is the the candidate going against Joe Manchin. He's also a party to the uh, the plaintiffs in that in that Texas case. Josh Hawley in Missouri is going against Claire McCaskill, and he's also a party to that. So you have uh, essentially someone that that Manchin and, and McCaskill in ostensibly tight races can point to and say, "My candidate is actively trying to take away preexisting conditions, no matter what." And what just they to, say. just to underline that point, Morrissey, the Attorney General in West Virginia, Hawley, Attorney General. Uh, facing off against McCaskill and, and Manchin, who voted for the ACA uh, or, or for health care protections. I, th- I think Heitkamp came in after the ACA was passed. Yes. Adam, you landed a scoop about a week ago on Republicans' attempts to blunt this by moving forward legislation that would ensure pre-existing conditions were protected. How much of that was real and how much was just political kabuki? Well, this has been interesting because it is it, for Republicans, it is completely backfired. Uh, so this is, to, to go back a little bit, this is a, a plan that was introduced by 10 Senate Republicans about a week ago. And what it would have done ostensibly is codify some of the pre-existing condition protections outside of the ACA. So even if Obamacare was wiped out, they said, we're preserving pre-existing conditions through HIPAA, which is, you know, has been in place, will remain in place. The only problem is that while it would have forced insurers to cover everybody whether they had a pre-existing condition or not, it didn't require them to cover the actual pre-existing conditions. And, and that's an oversight that was click, quickly picked apart by, uh, by analysts, by health policy experts, and that Democrats have now picked up on to kind of renew the m- momentum of this talking point. So, you know, I spoke with, with Claire McCaskill uh, a few days ago, and I asked her what she thought about this bill, clearly made to kind of put some pressure on her. And she said, she said, quote, it's embarrassing. And she was wondering, she was saying, are people not paying attention? Do they think that they can put one over essentially on voters? And so it's something that the very vulnerable Democratic senators that Republicans were hoping to pressure with this, uh, it's given them kind of another opening to really, you know, go back to their initial, uh, initial message that they're the ones pre- protecting pre-existing conditions, not their opponents. The Nevada exchange director said that the bill, which is backed by Nevada Republican Senator Dean Heller, is is essentially something of a mirage that even she doesn't agree that it will do very much. Well, and it's been interesting because it's it's split Republicans. You have candidates who have gone out and on a ledge there and said, you know, this is an example of how we would protect pre-ex. Uh, but then you have, you know, Tom Tillis, who's one of the main sponsors, saying, well, look, if it doesn't completely protected things, then we'll make sure we change it. We'll make sure we, we get at the original intent. So it's, it, it's been kind of a, a difficult week on that uh, and for Republicans. And it's going to be a very busy week given the hearings in the Hill and down in Texas. So we will look to both of your coverage, Paul from Texas, Adam from DC. Thank you both for joining Politico Pulse Check for a preview. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. That's it for this bonus episode of Pulse Check. We will have a regular episode on Thursday, but it's going to be a little bit different. We'll be kicking off a series called Pulse Check at Work, where we take a closer look at how different jobs fit into healthcare. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>